Okay, say something. Is this working? Hello? Oh, working perfectly. Awesome. Okay. Apologies for that. Hi, and welcome to season two of my podcast. On this episode, we'll be discussing briefly the topic of what did a Gombin mean by okonomiya? My special guest today is Adam Kotzko. Adam, you're a friend of mine, as well as a professor at Scheimer Great Books School at North Central College. Uh, in your latest book, Agamben's Philosophical Trajectory, recently went on sale at finer book retailers. And I just now said the name Agamben out loud for the very first time in my life um, when I spoke the title of your book, and I just did it again. So two questions. One, am I pronouncing that correctly? And two, at what point in his career did people just start calling him by one name, Agamben? Yes, you are pronouncing it correctly. So good job. Oh, fantastic. I think for a long time, um, you know, Agamben's been writing since the 70s and um, in, in publishing books. But I think for a long time, you would have to clarify who you're talking about. Um, the, the the moment that he became kind of a figure that you just like say their name, you know, like Foucault or Derrida or Zizek or something like this, was when he published uh, his most famous book, Homo Soccer, which was originally published in 95, but I believe it came out in English around um, 1999. Um, and it was a very kind of compelling and counterintuitive political theory, and suddenly everybody was talking about it. And that's the moment that I think he became a gambit in the sense of being a internationally known, one-named figure. And that's that's the dream for everyone in academia, right, is to to no longer need to be specified who you're arguing with or against. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not, that's my dream personally, too. I feel like the, my last name is just so tailor-made for that type of thing, and I just worry it'll never reach its full potential. Well, I, I think the field is, is clear. There aren't a lot of other Kotzkos out there that you're competing with, oh, so definitely. maybe the bar is actually kind of low to be the only Kotzko. Oh, if that's the case, then yes. Yes, I've already achieved it. Um, and I think all that remains to do is just suppress any other Kotzkos from entering academia. I don't think that's going to be a problem. Uh, so before we get into what Agamben means by oikonomia, I want to ask maybe a question about that question, which uh, kind of has to do with deciding like when to leave words out there untranslated. Um, as someone who like sometimes professionally has to decide whether to translate a word or not, what kind of goes into that decision? I think the question is would it be misleading to translate this into a simpler, like more straightforward English term? Like in the case of oikonomia, um, the obvious translation is... Oikono, oik, oikonomia, oh, is that what we're going to go with? That's how I typically pronounce it. I, I'm not a great Greek scholar, so I might, you might be right too. It's the, the, the literal translation would be economy. And I think once you say that you can kind of see it in the word too you know like it just kind of shift around a couple of vowels or something and you get economy i think that he leaves it in greek to kind of defamiliarize it and to highlight the fact that the word has a history that um wasn't always obviously heading in the direction of our contemporary concept of economy so to to kind of oppose it to its its translation into english yeah it's 
the Greek term has a range of meanings that the English term kind of doesn't or doesn't anymore. Like it started out as a way of talking about um, like home economics, which in a sense is a redundant term that like originally all economics was in the home or the oikos. That's the first couple syllables of oikonomia. You know, when you're you're managing a household and you're managing, you know, a budget and uh, trying to provide for everybody, that requires a certain, like, flexible style of management. Like, the problem of the household is never completely solved. You know, it's an ongoing problem of how to balance everybody's needs and how to... Um, maybe your household, my household's doing great. Your household is completely solved. Yeah, it's a solved um, problem. Well, um, you'll have to let Agamben know that. The Greeks took that kind of, you know, know when to hold them, know when to fold them, like flexibility, and applied it to a lot of different areas um, outside of home economics. Like when a politician is giving a speech, he is trying to kind of manage the passions of the audience um, and trying to, you know, appeal to as wide a range of people as possible, even though they have like conflicting desires or interests. There's a lot of other places where the Greeks would use the term economy based on this model of flexible uh, management. And eventually that transfers into the field of uh, theology too, somewhat unexpectedly. And so I think we wouldn't talk about like the economy of a political speech or um, the economy of, I don't know much of anything really. We would always kind of think of it in terms of money and production and distribution and consumption and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't have the meta metaphorical resonance that it would have had for a Greek reader. My cursory reading of The Kingdom and the Glory, and I just looked at a few pages of it because all I'm interested in is how he's using this word, is that he's kind of referring to a, a doctrine developed by the Christian church, you know, in the Petristic era, a, a divine economy. Is that something you could unpack for me, or am I totally off on, on my understanding there? Yeah, they're, um, they're using the idea of economy um, to talk about how God is flexibly managing creation to kind of nudge everybody towards uh, salvation, and in particular, trying to reconcile like the Jews and Gentiles considered two very different groups in this theology and somehow push them both towards God's uh, intended outcome of salvation. The term originally um, came out of Gnostic thought and was a way for them to describe like the various like hierarchies of deities that, that manage the world. And Agamben thinks that the patristic or proto-Orthodox theologians basically appropriated this term uh, to use against the Gnostics and to use their kind of their own conceptuality against them. And it's um, envisioning God as as kind of uh, cleverly, flexibly making uh, sure the maximum number of people are saved in a way that respects their free will and their their free choice that it's not simply that God just determines it, but that he takes into account our actions and preferences and choices as well. So this, um, this flexible, nudgy, somewhat 
non-interventionist uh, economy of, of managing salvation feels like it has a lot of resonances with kind of modern ideas of market economies and and liberal thought. Is that a is that a connection that Agamben is particularly drawing here when he's doing political theology, or is that just a connection that I'm drawing because of the way you're talking about it? No, it's it's totally his his end goal is to show that um, modern uh, theories of economics have have theological roots, and it's a little bit sad because a lot of the the stuff that would connect his theological investigation explicitly to modern thought is just in a few short appendices at the back of the book. Like you could probably just skip to those parts um, if you're interested in that. But he shows like that the invisible hand was originally explicitly conceived as God's hand kind of managing things behind the scenes. Like the connections are, are pretty obvious, as you say, even without me, you know, kind of uh, nudging you to think that. <laughs> uh, so I, I think we're pretty close to wrapping up. I feel like I've got a, a decent handle on this and some pointers for stuff to read in the future. Um, I'd include, I'd, or sorry, I'd encourage uh, any listeners who are confused about political theology uh, to read the first chapter of your book, Neoliberalism's Demons, um, which I think does a, a good job of explaining what political theology is and what it's good for, um, and also throws in kind of a good explanation of neoliberalism for free, um, which which makes it... Um, just great cocktail party material if you're looking for something to make you sound smart. Um, is there an, another kind of point that Agamben's trying to make with in the kind of the political theology world of of bringing that concept of oikonomia into dialogue with politics, um, or is it is it primarily drawing that connection with kind of liberalism and economic thought in the modern sense? I think what he's trying to show is that by secularizing this theological concept, it actually made like this the seemingly flexible and um, mode of management that respects our freedom. It unexpectedly made it an everlasting prison because uh, the thing about God's economy of salvation is that eventually it ends and there is salvation. Um, God's not managing us indirectly forever. Like there is a culminating moment where we enter, you know, heaven or hell, depending on the last judgment. But at some point it ends. And he thinks that because the modern economy is supposed to never end, that it actually becomes a hellish reality that we can never escape. And that what promises us freedom and salvation is just and actually endlessly deferring those things with no prospect of real redemption or salvation or freedom from this um, economic order. So my mind immediately tries to draw a connection with Marxist thought, which would say, well, of, of course, this system is, says it will never end, but it, it must end. Its inherent contradictions will bring it to its end. Is that not a connection Agamben is willing to, to draw or something that he leaves for the reader to... Yeah, I think um, he has kind of a weird passive-aggressive relationship with Marxism, um, so most of what he says about Marxism seems like formulated to make sure that it pisses off Marxists, but it's not totally clear what he means other than that. Uh, oh, well, that's a that's probably just a marketing tactic on his part. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but he, yeah, I think his complaint about the Marxist narrative is that it seems too automatic, as though the economy is ultimately going to save us from the economy. 
the government says, no, we just need to stop doing this. We don't need to keep like doubling down on capitalist development, hoping that it's going to someday pay off and give us the communist utopia. Um, if we want to do something else, we have to actually do something else. Uh, yeah, I, I think of it as um, pointing out an unsustainable trend and saying this cannot possibly continue indefinitely um, is kind of a glass half full or glass half empty <laughs> viewpoint. Yes. Um, any any parting remarks or concerns, or do you just want to tell me kind of how your dog is doing? Oh yeah, he's he's doing good. He's he's kind of laying on the couch now. Um, he's probably going to go for a walk after this, which is the shortest podcast I've ever participated in. Uh, well, you know, I I try to I try to do what I can to to keep it short. It's that's the very least I can I can do in terms of uh, managing the quality of my podcast. All right. Well, that about does it for this episode of my podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to my guest, Adam Kotzko.